thank you again for like making time and like hanging out. The last conversation we had really connected with a lot of people. So <laughs> yeah, of course. Yo, welcome to my summer lair. I'm your host, Sammy. I am the Marty McFly of podcasting Yunnan. Follow me. This is going to be a little bit weird, but you can do this. In the classic Will Smith movie, Hitch, Will plays a date doctor, human Tinder, so he shares observations about relationships. One observation is, and I quote, 60% of all human communication is nonverbal. Body language, 30% is your tone. So that means that 90% of what you're saying ain't coming out of your mouth. It's a Hollywood movie, so take that with a grain of salt. But there's definitely some truth in that statistic. Because especially with fashion, what we silently communicate and who we are is often not said verbally. And yet it's a clearly expressed sentiment. You know this from somebody wearing Air Jordans and what that instantly says about them and who they are. Or take another classic movie, Back to the Future 2. When Michael J. Fox slips into a pair of Nike mags and boom, they magically lace up. Our laces, all right. The director and senior curator of the Bada Shoe Museum in downtown Toronto, Elizabeth Semelhack, has assembled an intriguing collection of futuristic sneaker designs. Future Now, Virtual Sneakers to Cutting Edge Kicks, is on right now. And yes, it includes the Nike mags from Back to the Future 2. Our laces, all right. This was a prominent pop culture moment. We glimpsed a vision of what the future for sneakers could look like. The best way to control the future is simply to design it. <laughs> Figure out the future that you want just as an architect figures out on paper the building that he wants to build and then figure out how to take that blueprint and that vision and make it a reality. Or not, what about the metaverse? Are those real sneakers? Check out Fresh Kicks in Future Now, Virtual Sneakers to Cutting Edge Kicks. What kind of future do you want to design? That's dope. The Bada Shoe Museum is a compelling museum of footwear in downtown Toronto. Just as we have dinosaur bones in the Met in New York City, so too we require an archaeology of our footwear. Because of where we've been, and in this case, in this exhibition, where we're going. Welcome back, Elizabeth, to my summer lair. It's incredible to have a shoe historian discussing the future. Because it's in the past that we see clues and cues to where the future is. Nothing is created in a void. So this is a captivating exhibition. Lots of unique designs, lots of unique styles, and lots of unique creators. This conversation covers the metaverse, green status. If Air Jordans communicate your values as a creator, what does green environmentally sound sneakers say about you? And this conversation about cutting edge kicks starts with going back to the future. <laughs> yeah, the Nike Mag. The evolution of a 10-second gag in a popular Hollywood movie has now become reality. How fascinating is that? Sound, the final frontier. 
My Summer Lair is an enterprise, a pop culture voyage with a continuing mission, to explore strange new worlds, to seek out new creators and celebrate established producers, to boldly go where no podcast has gone before. And now here is your host Sami Yunan. The current exhibition at the Bada Shoe Museum, Future Now, Virtual Sneakers, to Cutting Edge Kicks. One yep. of the highlights for me was the Nike mag. The uh, Yeah, is, I know. <laughs> right? This is the shoe from yeah. uh, Back to the Future Part 2, uh, designed, yep. of course, by Tinker Hatfield and Mark Parker. Um, Back to the Future 2, I, it feels like it's one of the first times we saw, like, future sneakers. Like, I know I in know. the past... I mean- We've had like uh, the Cinderella glass slipper and Dorothy's like uh, tap home shoes, but this was like future sneakers, isn't it? I mean, it was uh, revolutionary, right? And mm-hmm. and so when it came out, the movie prop had to be uh, powered by a much larger battery. It had to have wires, and it really was a prop. Movie magic. The idea, what? Movie magic. Yeah, it was completely magic. But um, but the idea that maybe sell auto lacing shoes would be something in the future clearly resonated with um, moviegoers and Tinker was tasked right, <laughs> or he embraced himself uh, with the with the idea that this could be solved. Um, and it wasn't until 2012 when batteries small enough to fit into a shoe and strong enough to power auto lacing mm-hmm. were actually invented. So it wasn't even that. Um, so he, he did have to, he and Tiffany Beers, right, had to wait for technology to uh, to catch up with the dream. That, that's a key word you just used, solved. Because a lot of the shoes and the designs in this exhibition and in your book as well called Future Now, they're basically just trying to solve problems. Isn't that basically one of the themes? Yeah, I mean, I, I absolutely. And I think that innovation, you know, what is it? Uh, necessity is the, the mother, mother of invention, yeah. right? And so I do think that um, trying to solve problems can spark creative creativity in really meaningful ways. And so everything from new processes and what those can offer in terms of opportunities for new shapes and new materials to things like the fact that we make 20 billion pairs of shoes each year Mm -hmm. and how are we dealing with their disposal, um, sustainability issues. And then as you know, um, what we put on our bodies has a lot of uh, political meaning and it can be used for self-expression. It can be used for, it can be very limiting for people in terms of um, not being inclusive. And so there's lots of things, lots of problems out there to solve. Mm-hmm. And I think that it's interesting to consider in a small way, how footwear is a part of helping to imagine the future. But is there a, such a thing as like being too ahead of the curve in terms of innovation like one of the examples I'm thinking about was in your book, Future Now, you write about Adidas's automated speed factories. Right? Yes, right. Just kind of like unpack a little bit of what the automated speed factory was, because it sounded like a cool idea on paper, but unfortunately, yeah. <laughs> the execution didn't quite like, like you were just saying with the, the Nike mag, right? Like you got to wait for the technology and all that to kind of catch up. This seemed a little bit too ahead of the curve. Yeah, so the Speed Factory, you know, you're right. I mean, I think that people have had since, even if you go back to the 1930s, this idea that machines, robots were going to 
displace us. Uh, mm -hmm. Robots are going to change the world. Um, we were going to either uh, benefit from from uh, robots doing all of our menial tasks, or we were going to have robot overlords. Um, and, <laughs> there's and there's I rarely ever any like in between with those two things, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's either new um, hobbies you know, or Terminator Two. Yeah, the concerns right we have all the time. If you think about all the discussions happening now with AI, but um. You know, I think the Speed Factory had some interesting ideas in terms of uh, returning production to local and uh, local countries, uh, trying to deal with shipping costs, and you know, the dream being that if you had these automated, basically automated um, factories, that they could be responsive to local trends and local desires. But the reality is that it's hard to retool a machine. It's very easy to tell a human being, mm -hmm. change it up a little bit. And so after those huge investments in the two speed factories, um, they did retain some of uh, the, you know, the, the information that they gained, they, they have put towards uh, continued production, but they had to close the two speed factories um, simply because the robots were not responsive enough. Yeah. So then as we're kind of talking, like this exhibition highlights like established companies, like we just mentioned Adidas trying to do things with the Speed Factory, uh, Nike and Puma. Like how are they trying to balance innovation with success? Because there's a lot more pressure for these larger companies, right? To be obviously yeah. successful. I mean, yeah. And, and you know, I do think that uh, uh, necessity may be the mother of invention, but many, many inventions fall flat. Mm -hmm. And so I, I do think that a lot of companies do give space for innovation. Um, if you think about ISPA, Nike's ISPA, you know, sort of encouraging innovation. And obviously these companies are driven by profit and mm -hmm. they do want innovation to be able to be brought to scale. Um, but having said that, I think because innovation, particularly in sneakers, goes hand in hand, I think they need to create spaces for these opportunities um, for it, for innovation to fall flat. And so um, not being privy to the pressures of what innovators in each of these uh, major producers might be under, I, I get the sense that there is real um, desire for uh, continued and constant innovation. And obviously not every single thing that's innovated can be successful. Um, a great example of what you're talking about is the Nike Air Foam Post 1. Was that how you pronounce it? The Foam Posit? Foam Posit 1, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Because they, they created it and then they felt it was not successful and they destroyed the mold. I didn't Correct, know. I know. I didn't know that they would even go to that point where they would destroy the mold. I thought they would just like file it away as a failure, like a stand-up comic. Like that joke didn't work. You know what I mean? So you you file away. But I, I was surprised that in your exhibition they mentioned you mentioned, and in the book as well, that they destroyed the mold. I know. Oh my gosh. And and you know it was such an innovative shoe. It was so futuristic in terms of the material use, how it looked, and it was um, Nike jumped the gun a little too fast when it decided that it was not a successful pro uh, product when it has gone on to become one of the most important sneakers that Eric Avar um, has ever made, uh, Nike's ever produced. 
And so, yes, this is why archives, mm -hmm. archives are important because yeah. rather than destroy things, you can put them aside. Although, you know, when you think about um, destroying all the molds, it's not a mold, right? It's a mold for every shoe size. It's, I mean, these are, these are massive mm -hmm. industry pieces that need that probably storing would be um, an impossibility in, in reality. As we're kind of talking about these things, is this exhibition future now, is this an evolution of taste or is this an evolution of storytelling? Um, you know, I think it's an evolution of multiple things. And so, you know, the reason I wanted to do the exhibition was I spent my time as a shoe historian, right? Looking at what's happened in the past, but over the years, I can see that ideas from 50 years ago, 100 years ago, they still are coming to fruition today. And so I thought, oh, would it be interesting to stand at the edge of now and, and think about what's happening at this moment and what it might do for what we wear in the future? Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I think that the reasons why we wear shoes are so beyond the practical that the exhibition has to address or has to step into mm -hmm. um, uh, well a number of different areas, mm -hmm. right? Uh, and so it's not simply the latest in terms of technology, but also why do we want these things? You know, the, uh, the exhibition also talks about the metaverse. In the metaverse, you don't need anything. Mm -hmm. And yet... <laughs> like, and yet, yes. um, we are seeing that fashion is becoming central to expressions of self in the metaverse. And so, I mean, I feel like that section of the exhibition is a perfect example that talks about the meanings of footwear and fashion that go way beyond practical limitations of fabrication, practical limitations of sustainability. Mm -hmm. um, it is all about social. And so, um, yeah, I can't ignore the social. Mm -hmm. But a part of the social of what you're talking about, is this also like like brand allegiance, for lack of a better term? Well, you know, I think that this is a really interesting thing to be considering. And, you know, if you look at the Jordan drop in or Jordan drops in um, Fortnite, mm -hmm. for example, you know, the fact that we are seeing virtual versions of, of footwear that we might have in our own closets, um, I think speaks to the the power we give to our own brand alliances, right? And so why would you want to wear a pair of Jordans in Fortnite? <laughs> and so asking that question requires that you tease apart, what does Jordan mean? Mm -hmm. Why do I want to have my avatar wearing Jordans in this gaming space? What is it saying? How is it being um, apprehended by those who see me? And, you know, I, I, say this all the time. I probably said it to you. Uh, fashion is anything but frivolous. It is a principal economic engine. You know, I, I like to say that Canada was founded on fashion. Like men got in boats and came over to this continent looking for beaver pelts to make men's hats mm -hmm. back in Europe. And what I find so interesting in looking at the metaverse is that it's, it's a very different space, but in some ways it's like a, a quote unquote new world and fashion is there stepping into, you could argue colonizing 
this um, this meta uh, this uh, metaverse space, mm-hmm. and so it has to do with both monetizing, you know, the value, what you can sell, um, but then it also has to do with what functions fashion um, fulfills in our real world. Are we taking into the metaverse? And this idea too of what you're talking about, like, are people going to like? I guess you feel like as kind of sneakers and all this kind of evolve, it's not just the metaverse, but also in this real life, you can kind of see like this emphasis now on like environmental aspects. And do you think this is going to like have an appeal as well in terms of the identity? Because this is a new wrinkle in terms of like sneaker identity and like sneaker uh, like status, I guess. Right. Like these environmental aspects and mushroom leather and these kind of things that we're seeing. Like, do you see that also like being another like subset, I guess, kind of out of all of what you're just talking about? Um, I I think the sustainability issue is actually really interesting because the majority of sneakers that are considered assets are not sustainable. Right. Um, Especially the older ones, too. Like the Parley for the Oceans, right? That's a collectible. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that was made in relation, a relationship between Adidas and Parley for the Oceans, interested in cleaning up ocean plastics. It did lead to Adidas um, deciding not to use virgin plastics. It was a very important shoe for them. And it has become a highly collectible shoe. But I would argue that the majority of shoes that are focused on sustainability are not the sneakers that are being exchanged on StockX. Correct. Um, I think that they are serving a slightly different purpose. And one of their purposes is to not last. Um, This is a real conundrum for me as a director of a museum is I, I am looking at some extremely important shoes that are being produced today that are not meant to survive. And so how are we as a museum supposed to hold on to them? It's like having right? a, a gallery display of like graffiti. It almost defeats yeah, the Yeah, exactly. Like how do you preserve it, right? right? And then when you, you know, I don't know if you saw the the um, the shoe, Julian Sock's shoe uh, concept, which is that you would have 3D printed lasts that mm-hmm. are specifically made to your size. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you'd have, uh, a design, you know, you could in the, in the future, you could go to Nike and download and then 3d print the latest sneakers. Right. And mm-hmm. then you'd have your 3d printed last to have the shoe built. You add corn, you add water and you add, um, uh, mushroom spores and overnight your shoes grow, you wear them through the day. And at the end of the day, you can compost them. Mm-hmm. Like that would be a wild shift Yeah, in, in how we thought about the disposability of fashion, how quickly we could change things. Um, the other thing too, that I think is interesting and I'm really struck by his piece is that before industrialization, we always had those of us who are lucky enough to, or would have been lucky enough to afford um, bespoke fashion, but the majority of people would have been able to go to their shoemaker, have last carved to their shoe, their individual foot shapes. They might bring the materials. They would end, they'd walk out the door with a pair of shoes made for them 
industrialization made it so that you had to now consider yourself as a size, go into a store and think about um, what was on offer and if it worked for you. Mm -hmm. And I believe that in 500 years, we'll be looking back at this industrialization moment and just say, wait, what? Yeah. You actually thought of your body as a size. You didn't have something made for you. And I think something like mushroom leather, things you can grow at home um, are going to change that. And we will not have to be restricted uh, in the future. Yeah, it's that tension. I think you and I have talked about this before. It's that tension of like, I want to wear Air Jordan 1s because that's my identity and who I am and what it says about me and Jordan and basketball and all that kind of things, all those semiotics, I guess. But at the same time, Nike's making like tons of Air Jordan 1s. So even though I'm wearing them to be an individual, I'm really not. <laughs> I'm kind of just like, well, you I'm know, I, I do, right? I, I do have to say that if fashion was about individuality, mm-hmm. we would all be dressed very, very differently from one another. Right. I think fashion is more often used to establish group alliance. And that's why brand identity or brand alliance is so important. You're like, I prefer what Nike does. I only wear Nike. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we construct ideas of ourselves based on these larger narratives that are being promoted by larger companies or larger social groups, as opposed to waking up in the morning and saying, who am I? Right. Um, I feel like I'm going to, I don't know, dress like a duck today. We don't do that. <laughs> yes. Yeah. But it's kind of like, because we started this conversation talking about the Nike Mag and the science fiction film Back to the Future. And you see that in a lot of science fiction, like Star Trek and stuff like that, where they visit some other Ooh. aliens and they're all wearing the same gear, right? Like they all yeah. they all have the same identity, basically. And I know part of it is just laziness and budgets and all that kind of stuff. I get that. But but that's kind of generally what you're getting at, where like we, we've, we're kind of stuck in this society now where we're all like, look like Klingons, I guess is kind of what you're saying, right? Where we all, well, I mean, you know, I, I, I do think that, um, in many ways we do wear uniforms. Mm-hmm. And so we, we judge each other, right. On how we, we look and part of how we look is based on what we put on our bodies. And so we know that we can make assumptions. You know, I, I talk about this in terms of Birkenstocks. Like years ago, Birkenstocks has changed more recently, but years ago, if you saw somebody in a pair of Birkenstocks, you might feel like, oh, you thought that they voted left. Mm-hmm. They probably recycled. Maybe they had a vegan or vegetarian diet. Granola. And you can associate those life, huge life things mm-hmm. and ideologies because of a pair of shoes somebody's wearing. Right. That means that we are embedding a lot of information in the in our footwear choices. Those those connotations, do you think that will also translate in terms of the resale market for more like the volatile personalities like Elon Musk has worn artifacts, for example. Uh, Kanye West has a no, lot. No, he never. No, he never wore artifacts. Oh, which ones were they? No, so that was actually how Artifact got the start. Was um, they did a virtual sneaker based on his cyber truck called the Cyber Sneaker, and they did a digital image of him, and they made it look like he was wearing the shoes. Oh, I got, but, I got snookered. Okay, yeah. But the shoes didn't don't exist. Um, they're only virtual. Okay, so then what about like something like then Kanye West and Adidas? Like, 
those exist, but he's obviously got a yeah. volatile personality. Do you think that's going to have an impact on the resale market or will that just drive up the, the demand because now they're limited, right? Now that he's no longer. Yeah. Working. I mean, that's a, that is a challenging question um, because, you know, recently with what Kanye West has been saying, mm-hmm. well, Adidas has uh, severed ties with him. And a lot of people no longer want to purchase his uh, shoes anymore. Um, I haven't checked StockX recently, but I know that there have been discussions about people potentially grabbing them now because they won't exist in the future. Um, I uh, it, That is a challenging thing. It's a historic fact that his shoes were important. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a historic fact what he has said. Um, and so from a history point of view, these things, you know, they've happened. Mm -hmm. Um, Whether or not profit should be made off of this, hmm, I think I have personal feelings about that. (laughs) I could imagine, yeah. That's also kind of freeing too, though, to kind of circle back what you were saying before about like identity, which is like, I think where the metaverse comes in because now if certain things like Kanye or whatever come up, you could instantly switch a lot more easier. Right. And you can kind of design or wear whatever you want. And like you can kind of switch brand allegiances quickly. You can design different things like you have a lot more freedom in the metaverse than you do in real life. Yeah. And one of the things that I I don't know if it's going to happen, but I think it would be really exciting if it did is in the metaverse, there's literally no obligation to protect the body. You don't have to wear shoes at all. Mm -hmm. And so if we think about fashion and its forays into the metaverse, we can also consider the body to be a completely different thing. We could, we could be so much more experimental. Like if we want to believe that fashion is about individuality, Mm -hmm. holy crap, the metaverse is a place where we could go wild and people could really um, have self-expression with no physical limitations. I don't, see that happening um, at the moment, but my hope is that the metaverse can be a place where the the um, the limitations of our own corporeality can be set aside and we can um, really experiment with different identities. We don't have to be linked and, and you know, harnessed to this moral coil. Yeah. Do you think then that will then start to have an impact on real life then, on real life designs and the shoes that people... Yeah, I I think it could be very interesting. I mean, um, in the exhibition, there's a a pair of shoes, uh, or there's four pairs of shoes designed for wear in the virtual world. And Antonio, the designer, um, he is interested in using water or liquid as sort of the base for for these um, virtual reality shoes. You know, the haptic problem is not been solved. I, I think there's some issues with solving the haptics uh, because of potential nefarious use um, mm-hmm. of virtual reality in um, horrible situations. But but if the med- if um, the haptics were solved and everybody <laughs> played nicely, uh, the idea that his liquid footwear could actually physic- make you physically feel like you had this water swirling around your legs That'd be such an interesting experience to have, right, mm-hmm. in, in the virtual realm. Um, and so you can't, of course, make liquid footwear in real life, but 
why not in, right. in virtual reality? Right. Yeah. Where does comfort come into all of this as well? We're talking about like bigger things, obviously, like identity and brand allegiance and all these kind of things. Yeah. Going through the exhibition, I saw some of the shoes and I'm like, some of them don't look comfortable, but I, <laughs> I don't look comfortable. Yeah, they don't look comfortable. You know what I mean? So like, like <laughs> that used to be one of the core concepts of shoes, right? Like obviously, we've added all these layers to them now, but like, well, I mean, I, I may be misspeaking, but um. I don't know if you've ever had to wear a pair of high heels. No, no. I, I, and so I, I think that comfort in fashion has never really been of concern. Mm -hmm. I think sneakers and their acceptance uh, more broadly as items of fashion has allowed more of us to feel comfortable in what we put on our feet. Um, but comfort and fashion and being fashionable have very rarely gone hand in hand. <laughs> so then you think then this current trend of like working from home uh, and kind of like more towards like uh, being homebodies, because I know like we're coming still out of the pandemic. So a lot of people are still not right. going to concerts. We're seeing like concert sales are down. Movie ticket sales are down. Not that you necessarily wear high heels to these things. Uh, and even before the pandemic, things were kind of like shifting, like they, we were getting rid of the tie and kind of people are going more. Yeah, correct. Yeah, more we have been shifting more towards athleisure in general. fashion. Yeah. Right? And so you think that this trend is going to accelerate now that we've had this pandemic and kind of going through this pandemic where there's going to be that? Yeah, it's interesting. When when um, the pandemic hit, I got that question quite a bit of what's going to happen to fashion at first. I was wondering if we were going to have a roaring 20s, um, you know, this like complete demarcation between past and present. Um, but I, I think that we've come, we're starting to come out of the pandemic. The economy is really bad. The war in Ukraine. Uh, I, I don't see us having this like um, new fashion moment. Um, even the platform Uggs that are super, super popular right now are a elevated, sorry, um, <laughs> version of a comfortable shoe. Um, I think comfort is gonna be with us for a little while longer. Uh, and yeah, I, I think that we have so many different types of shoes, but particularly sneakers that can do such a range of social things at, and at such a range of price points that um, those super uncomfortable shoes like high heels are maybe not going to make a real comeback. Yeah, I can see that. At least not that. anytime soon. You just mentioned the magic phrase range of sneakers and range of price points and all that. So can you give me some of the uh, interviews and some of the profiles that you have in your book, Future Now? Because you have a broad range, uh, like you've done a number of interviews. Yeah. So can you give me some of the people or some of the highlights in the book for you? Yeah, I mean, all, all of the interviews were so great. And it was interesting because I reached out to Artifact instantly, the second they kind of popped up on the scene. And they were so nice to take my call. And so I, um, I was really happy with my interview with them. Um, they did the cover of the book. And... They're, you know, they were bought by Nike um, right as the book was being published. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but I, so I think their interview is really interesting because it's 
just pre-Nike, right? It's like who they were before mm -hmm. uh, Nike took them over. It's, a, I think, an interesting moment to have captured. Um, Daniel Bailey, uh, such an incredible designer, uh, really giving a wonderful interview. I love the octopus shoe. Um, <laughs> yeah. That, yeah. And, and what I love about Daniel's work, uh, Mr. Bailey, is that he everything that he makes is wearable and could even be scalable. Uh, and so his designs, I think, are just incredible and really walk that line between art and um, fashion. Uh, Salehi Bamburi, who's, you know, blown the world up with mm -hmm. his Crocs that he did with Crocs. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, that's a wonderful interview. I talked to Stephen Smith um, and he is he has been a futurist since day one. And so the incredible work that he did with Reebok and uh, the Pump Fury, um, and you know, obviously it's controversial now, but a lot of the work that he's done for Kanye West, really very forward-looking. So an interesting interview there. Um, Alexander Taylor uh, and talking about how the Parlay for the Oceans came to be. Um, I really enjoyed that conversation. Um, Allison Felix, you know, the winningest female uh, track and field Olympian of all time, who left her sponsor, created her own secret company and won gold in Tokyo, the Tokyo Olympics wearing them. Um, I thought that was a fantastic interview. Dwayne Edwards, um, talk about sustainability, right? Like you cannot have a future in footwear design if you are not bringing people into working in the field and his dedication to really opening that up to people so that the uh, so that shoe production reflects um, the greater population. Uh, I mean, I could go on and on. <laughs> That's a good highlight. Yeah. It, what was for you, like I said, at the beginning of this conversation, the Nike mag was one of the highlights for me seeing that like in the display case at uh, the Bata Shoe Museum. What was for you one of the futuristic sneakers that was a highlight. Absolutely. Um, you know, Nike being willing to lend the Nike mag was incredible. Mm -hmm. um, I I really liked uh, the Meta Pigeon. Um, I have a nice interview Staple. with Jeff Staple as well. And that was really interesting because Jeff, you know, he, when he did the Pigeon in 2005, created sort of the, the the first sneaker riot um, around a limited drop. And then I think he was bothering Artifact the same time I was <laughs> um, calling them instantly and wanting to work with them. And, you know, to hear his story about how it starts out that they make an NFT sneaker first, but then he wants the physical sneaker. And I think that this is going to be with us for a while where we want both the virtual version mm -hmm. for the metaverse version and the physical version. And so being able, so Artifact gifted to us the meta, meta Pigeon. And so being able to see the physical sneaker as well as the, the digital version, um, I think that was really great to be able to see that. Uh, and then the stuff coming out of Scry um, in uh, Beijing, uh, really, really interesting all digital work from digital creation to digital production, um, the sort of biomorphic uh, uh, shapes 
that Scry is able to do, I think is really, really exciting. Uh, it almost verges on, again, that um, metaverse style being made into real life footwear. Mm -hmm. uh, I really like those as well. So for you, as we're kind of talking about these things and we're wrapping up now, like the future for you is really bright. You seem really excited about all these things, even though you're kind of, quote unquote, I guess, a historian, like you kind of keep an archive of these things. But for you, the future is alive and bright. Yeah, I mean, I I think that um, there are more shoes that I can choose. There are shoes that are changing. I'm hoping to make this a traveling exhibition mm -hmm. and I will be adding to, to it. So I'm constantly looking on the lookout for what is the next thing. Um, it, it, being, a, I mean, we're always, we're always one second, um, ahead of the past. Right. Mm -hmm. And so the past isn't necessarily a long, long time ago. Mm -hmm. And so as a historian, um, I am as interested to try to figure out what's happened eons ago as I am trying to figure out the past as it's being currently created. And so it's, I think um, there's so much opportunity and I think innovation, new technologies, new materials. Uh, like I said, I think that this moment of industrialization where we have to fit into cookie cutter sizes is going to move away. And so it's interesting to live through a time period that I think will come to an end. And so I'm interested to see it start to be pulled apart and us return to uh, a place where we can begin to get things that meet our individual needs and meet our individual bodies, uh, either in this world or in the metaverse. This isn't quite the same thing, but we've seen that rebellion before with vinyl, right? We're like everything was going to digital and everybody could access everything, whatever, but people want to go back to vinyl, back to analog. Right. And yeah, well, you know, and I've thought about that too. Like, will we see a resurgence of um, handcrafted shoes? Mm -hmm. e even if you go back to the 19th century and you look at industrialization as it's really starting to gear up, that's when the arts and crafts movement starts. And the arts and crafts movement was all about preserving handicraft. And you even had um, this sort of craze for upper and upper middle class women to start shoemaking. Um, making uppers and, and making slippers for their husbands and working with um, shoemakers to actually sole them. But, uh, you know, that didn't last forever. Mm -hmm. um, it created this one moment in history called the arts and crafts movement. But I've been wondering when we're going to see that again. Um, I, I do imagine that we will see uh, interest, a resurgence in handcraftedness. I think right now it's in vintage. Right. It's, yeah. Uh, a lot of people are finding older shoes and see that you can resole them, you can keep them, you can preserve them, but that's also linked to ideas of sustainability and identity as opposed again. to craftsmanship. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you write on page thirteen. Each new invention increased production, but also destabilized the work environment by creating new jobs or rendering others obsolete. And that's yeah. kind of what you're talking about too. That kind of that tension between like all these things we've been talking about, which is like that kind of innovation and new materials. Uh, but then other things get kind of left behind and like uh, yeah. the Adidas speed factory didn't quite work out. So we'll try something new. Like, you know what I mean? So it's just kind of constant uh, experimentation to find this groove or this vibe. Yeah. And it's, 
you never know exactly what, how it's going to play out, mm -hmm. but um, it's you have to stand back and and sort of watch it, watch it move forward and see what's going to work. And um, and hopefully now with greater interest in sustainability and things like that, we can we can be continue to be innovative, but also uh, more thoughtful for the impact that our uh, fashion choices have on the environment. There you go. So it's at the Bada Shoe Museum in downtown Toronto, Future Now, Virtual Sneakers to Cutting Edge Kicks. And uh, that's on right now. And your book, your companion book as well, which where you listed all these really great interviews. You can pour over the sneakers a little bit longer too, right? Because you got <laughs> them all in the, the book. Uh, the book is also called Future Now. Thank you, Elizabeth, again for like hanging out. This was like a ton of stuff in here to like unpack. So I appreciate you taking the time. Well, thank you. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much. Yo, that was director and senior curator of the Bada Shoe Museum in downtown Toronto, Elizabeth Semelhack. The exhibition is called Future Now, Virtual Sneakers to Cutting Edge Kicks. You gotta take a friend and go. There's so much to see and to talk about. It's one of those you need to kind of get into it deals. There's a lot to unpack. As for the Nike mag, first immortalized in the 1989 film Back to the Future 2, the Nike mag was finally released to the public in September 2011. 1989 to 2011, just to give you a window of the evolution of sneaker tech. It is astonishing how fashion persists, how through all these evolutions, small and big, like self-lacing sneakers to the metaverse, fashion has meaning. It has value for us as humans. I consume a lot of science fiction movies and TV shows. One thing that has always, always, always bothered me is the aliens look like us. I get it. Part of that is just budgets. You can't always apply movie magic to that type of thing. There was no CGI in the 1970s. I get that. But for a forward-looking genre laced with imagination and fueled by speculation, you would expect an alien to be, you know, <laughs> alien. Predator, Groot, Spock, Superman, uh, Doctor Who, Chewbacca. You name most of them, and they look like us. Two arms, two legs. They eat food via their mouth. Cartoons, though, were a lot more free. Dr. Zoidberg. Shout out to Dr. Zoidberg. Uh, Kang and Kodos on The Simpsons are two easy examples. Now those are weird aliens. However, for a time, the metaverse, in a weird sort of way, superseded cartoons. As you listen to this conversation, the major corporations are shutting down their metaverses. Disney, Facebook, and others are laying off a lot of the staff and departments related to the creation of the metaverse. I wonder how this is going to impact some of the fashion concerns and issues that we talked about in this episode. What we got into is often not part of the common metaverse narrative. And that's the value of chatting with a historian about the future. I spent time in the past and in the future on My Pal Sammy, a companion newsletter published at Substack. If you enjoyed this conversation and want more of my sarcasm in your life, now there's an offer. Please and thank you. Sign up at mysummerlayer.com slash 
subscribe. MySummerLayer.com slash subscribe. Thank you for listening to me in the Netflix world. Cutting Edge Kicks, yo.